Hey guys, welcome to Veritas. See some new faces out there if you don't know me. My name's Austin, I'm one of the directors here. Been working here for a long time, so if this is your first time, welcome. Thanks for braving the rain. Anybody's parents still have things of yours that they just need to let go of? Your rooms, I hear some amens, you have to hear rooms look the same. I realized that a few years ago, I helped my mom move out of her house, the house we grew up in, into a smaller apartment. And I was helping her clean out our basement, which had looked the same since I was about five, and came across six or seven of these massive plastic tubs. And it turns out that they contained seemingly every single piece of schoolwork I ever did from kindergarten to eighth grade. It was fascinating, it was flattering, and it was creepy all at once. They had these little multiplication table tests they did. How many can you do in, you know, five minutes? Had some old science project, ABC practices, English essays from seventh grade about who knows what. Now, on the one hand, I understood how valuable these were to my mom. And uh, since I've grown up, you know, there's something about remembering the past that's good. I keep a few things of my kids, uh, schoolwork, not all of it. But, you know, on the other hand, keeping that schoolwork, it was making her life a lot more difficult because she wasn't going to have any room in her new apartment. It was going to make life difficult for me and anybody else helping her move because I have to carry these massive tubs in there. And, and moreover, that schoolwork that I did, it served no purpose in the present other than just to take up space and collect dust. Now, in the end, I convinced her that it was time to move on. It was time to get rid of all those assignments because she didn't need them anymore. Why am I telling you this? Well, we're in a sermon series called Four Questions Every College Student Needs to Answer. Now, these aren't the only questions that you need to answer, but we think these are four really significant ones. And the question we're answering tonight is, do we really need the Old Testament? You see, I think many of us tend to view the Old Testament the same way uh, that that schoolwork was viewed that my mom hung on to. There's maybe value for it back then, but today it's outdated. It serves no purpose. In fact, it makes our lives a lot more difficult. We would all be better off if we just got rid of it and moved on. Have you ever thought about the Old Testament like that? Do you believe that in some sense about the Old Testament? No people who believe this? I asked several of you uh, a few days ago just some reasons that you've heard people give as to why we don't need the Old Testament, maybe things that you've heard you might be thinking are true, but you're not quite sure. And, and most, now not all, but most of the responses I got back fell into one of three different categories. Again, these aren't the only reasons people think this, but these are the three main ones. Here's the first one. We don't need the Old Testament because it's weird. You know, the Old Testament contains a lot of weird laws about food that you can and can't eat, clothes you can and can't wear, what to do if you're unclean, whatever that means, kind of weird. Here's just a few examples. Deuteronomy chapter 22, you shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Anybody got wool and linen on? You gone. All right. Leviticus 19, you shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead. Or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Cool. Leviticus 21, my personal favorite. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. It was fun while it lasted, right? Okay. There's weird stuff in the Old Testament. Here's the second reason. 
we don't need the Old Testament because the Old Testament is offensive. Now, to be honest, I spent a long time trying to figure out which Old Testament passage that's offensive to focus on and talk about, but I couldn't land on one because there's a lot. In Genesis 7, God sends a worldwide flood that kills everyone on the earth except for eight people. In Genesis 21 and 22, God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. In Deuteronomy 20, God commands the Israelites to devote to destruction an entire nation, the Canaanites. There's numerous verses that seem to endorse slavery. What do we do with these passages? They're there. As a result of of these and many others, uh, well-known biologists, scientists, very outspoken atheist Richard Dawkins, he comes to this conclusion about the God of the Old Testament. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. It's a pretty extreme quote. I'm not quite sure people have as visceral a reaction as he does, but I think people, in a lot of ways, have the same reaction when they come across these offensive passages in the Old Testament. Final a reason people often give for why we don't need the Old Testament, probably because they believe in some form of the first two, is that the Old Testament is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Christopher Hitchens, again, another well-known atheist, in his book, God is Not Great, sums it up this way. Well, I think, to be honest, the Old, the Old Testament contains a warrant for trafficking in humans, for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for bride price, and for indiscriminate massacre but we're not bound by any of it because it was put together by crude, uncultured human animals. Now, it's not just non-Christians who say this about the Old Testament. It's Christians who think the Old Testament is irrelevant. One student told me that their FCA leader in high school at one of their FCA meetings said this. He said that the ta- he taught that the Old Testament is great history and beneficial to read because it sets up the New Testament, but we can't take the teachings out of the Old Testament as truth because it's now irrelevant and outdated thanks to Jesus coming on the scene. And now that Jesus has come, that God of the Old Testament, who is full of wrath and justice, has been replaced by the God of the New Testament, Jesus. And therefore, the entire Old Testament, all 39 books, they're unnecessary for Christians. It's a Christian saying that. Another student explained that the Old Testament seems irrelevant because it was written thousands of years ago. Some of the books 3,500 years ago. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with our life today, nor does it seem to have anything to do with Jesus. It's pretty convincing reasons, yeah? We don't need the Old Testament because it's weird, because it's offensive and it's irrelevant. Are we right? Are they right? Should we move on? I'll tell you in a minute why I think that we need the Old Testament. But first, let me just go back and revisit those three arguments to talk about just briefly why they're not as convincing as they might seem at first. Old Testament's weird. Let's go ahead and say amen, right? We have to accept that fact. It's a weird book. There's weird laws, and some of them don't make sense to us today. But here's the deal. We shouldn't reject the Old Testament out of hand just because 
It's weird. If you think about it, there have been weird laws in every place and every time in history. Take this one, for instance. This is about horses in 1884 in the city of Pattonsburg, Missouri. Here's the law. No person shall howl, shout, bawl, scream, use profane language, dance, sing, whoop, quarrel, and make any unusual noise or sound in such a manner as to disturb a horse. That's weird. I would love to see someone try to do this. That's a weird and it's a funny law that has no relevance for us today. But if you think about it, at the time, back in 1884, it made a lot of sense because the majority of people rode horses. And this, fact, this, in fact, the law was created actually to keep people safe because if you scared a horse and it freaked out, it would charge, it would probably trample people running on the street, maybe you run into kids, right? So this is a law that is rooted and based on trying to keep people safe. So I hope you hear the point. Just because a law is weird to us today, it doesn't mean that there isn't a reasonable explanation for it at the time it was written. And moreover, think of all the laws that make sense to us today that in 100 years, somebody's going to be going, what? They believe, what? what that? That's so weird. That doesn't make any sense. Okay, so we shouldn't reject it just because it's weird. Now, to be clear, if and when we are able to understand kind of what's underneath and behind some of these weird passages, I'm not saying that you're necessarily going to agree with that law. You might not, but again, the point is we can't get rid of the Old Testament just because it's weird. Second one, the Old Testament is offensive. Again, I'm not gonna argue with that because in a lot of ways it's true. If you have problems with offensive passages like the ones that I mentioned, then you're not crazy. In fact, if anybody doesn't have a problem with those, there's something wrong because we should have a problem with them. There's some very disturbing and hard things to process. And so if somebody has minimized these offensive passages in the past or overlooked them or ignored them and it's diminished your credibility of the Old Testament or the entire Bible or Christianity in general, I'm sorry. That's, that's not okay. As Christians, we shouldn't ignore or minimize or overlook these passages. Now, Obviously, you don't have time to interact with and talk about every single offensive passage that offends our modern sensibilities, but I do just want to say one thing about that. My guess is when you come across one of these passages, or if you have, you have an immediate visceral gut reaction that causes us to shut down, probably in revulsion and disgust, rightfully so. Because of that, we keep the Old Testament at arm's length. We say, nope, I know everything there is to know. I've read that once or twice. I know what's in it. Not for me. I'm going to move on to a more modern, cultured book. I get it. If you've done that, I get it. However, in a lot of these passages, they are morally complex waters that we are wading into. And what I mean is that when you dig a little deeper and when you start to study, and maybe you start to see all sides of the issue, it turns out there might be another side to the story. Let me give you another example. I had a friend of mine who has this book club and they just read the Russian novel Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. If you ever read it, uh, I haven't, but it's about a, a woman who commits adultery, has an affair with this young Russian military officer, right? And over the course of the 800 pages, you learn that this affair, it wasn't just a quick snap decision. It happened over the course of many months, after many hurts, after many acts of betrayal, both by Anna and both by her husband. Now, what's interesting is when my friend sat down to discuss this book, to talk about the characters and the plot and what they liked, half the group thought that Anna was a hero. They loved her and applauded her for actions. The other half of the group thought she was a villain. 
that she was the problem, wondered how could she do this whole thing. Both smart people, both read the same thing, and yet they came to different conclusions. Why? Well, in this case, the adultery really was a morally complex issue. You see, rarely does somebody just decide to up and cheat on their spouse. There's always a backstory. There's always a little bit more beneath the surface. And in a similar way, many of these Old Testament passages that are offensive are morally complex issues. There's a deeper backstory. So what's this mean? What should we do with this? Well, what if the next time you read one of these offensive passages, you just acknowledge that gut reaction. You acknowledge, wow, this is offensive. I don't like this. I don't, they're not feeling good about this. But then, but then you took a step forward and you went through the work of trying maybe to read a commentary, read a study Bible, talk with someone else about what's going on here, tried to get a different side, tried to dig a little deeper to see another side. I'm not saying that you're gonna agree with the issue. Nor am I saying that if you do this, it's gonna give you those nice, peaceful, warm fuzzies inside. Oh, glad I figured that out. Let's just move on. No, but at least you'll be able to give the issue the specific shot and hear the passage out, whatever it is. And maybe, just, just maybe, at the end of the day, what we should do is we should give God the benefit of the doubt. What I mean by that is let's just acknowledge that God is God, that his ways are higher. He's got a plan and a purpose that some of it we understand, but other reasons we don't understand. What if we read those passages, we just assume the best. And we said, I don't get it. Offends my modern sensibilities, but it's there. You've got a purpose for it. And so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna trust you with it. Now, after all that said, I hope you hear me when I say this further study and inquiry, it doesn't come at the expense of admitting the obvious that there are offensive passages in the Old Testament. Last one. Old Testament's irrelevant. Remember that Christopher Hitchens quote? We're not bound by the Old Testament. Remember that FCA leader? Now that Jesus has come on the scene, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. Here's my only response. Jesus found his Old Testament extremely relevant. Jesus found his Old Testament extremely relevant. Here's what I mean. Let me clarify something. During Jesus' lifetime, he's alive in the first century around 1020-ish A.D., they didn't call it the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. See, Jesus was born around, scholars think, about 4 B.C. and died somewhere around 28, 30-ish B.C. The New Testament letters that we have in our Bible, the earliest one was written around 48 A.D., the latest probably around 85 or 90 A.D. However, what we call the Old Testament in the Jesus' day, what the Jews called that was the scriptures, the law, the Torah, okay? It had been faithfully copied and transmitted through the ages. And so it was around in Jesus' day. There was a recognized body. We called the Old Testament today. They called it the law, the scriptures. And so Jesus found these scriptures, our Old Testament, extremely relevant. Let me, let me show you. Luke chapter 2. Mary, I love this story for a lot of reasons. Mary and Joseph, they, they go to the city of Jerusalem with Jesus, probably about 10 or 12. They go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. It's a celebration of what God did, releasing the Israelites from slavery. And they go to Jerusalem, it's a week-long celebration. So they have the celebration, they're great, they've packed up and they left. About a day into the journey, they look around and Mary goes, hey Joseph, where's Jesus? Joseph goes, I don't know, I thought you had him. Mary goes, I don't have him, I thought you had him. And this is like the original home alone moment, right? They're like, Jesus, you know? So they run back. I said that not in, you know, vain, you get it. They ran back to the city 
and they got to find Jesus. They're looking for Jesus. Where'd he go? Where'd he go? Where'd he go? Well, they find him. He's in the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 46 of Luke chapter two. After three days, good gracious, you think you've lost the savior of mankind for three days. What are we gonna tell God? I love the story, it's a great story. Three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And everyone who heard him, who heard Jesus, was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So Jesus was in the Jewish temple talking to the teachers, the rabbis. You see, these guys were the experts in their day of the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. What was he doing? He's sitting at their feet. He's listening. He's asking questions, and he's also providing answers. Jesus could have gone anywhere he wanted in those three days, and yet where'd he go? Went to the temple to learn, to study, and to teach the Old Testament. Another one, Matthew 4. Jesus is being tested in the wilderness for 40 days by Satan. Verse five, the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it's written, the devil is about to quote an Old Testament passage. So the devil knows the Old Testament. It's written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him. It's also written, do not put the Lord God to your test. That highlighted verse is another passage from Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. Jesus quoted the Old Testament when he was being tempted. It doesn't get much more relevant than that. If Jesus found the Old Testament relevant, shouldn't we find it relevant? Is it possible that we've, that we've missed it? Is it possible that we have been ignoring an extremely relevant and valuable resource? I think we need to admit, myself included, that many of us, though we haven't outright said, no, we don't need the Old Testament, our lives tell a different story. Our habits tell a different story. We might say we need it and that it's relevant, but, but when's the last time we really read it? When's the last time we searched it for wisdom and counsel. When's the last time you found yourself needing the Old Testament the way Jesus needed his Old Testament? You see, the reality is, whether we know it or not, we need our Old Testament. We can't just get rid of it like that elementary school homework. Why? Three reasons why. Here's the first thing. If we lose the Old Testament, then we lose God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. Maybe you've heard this verse trumpeted around all the time, rightfully so. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you're like me, when you read the phrase all scripture, you default to imagining the New Testament. I do it all the time. That's true. The New Testament is God-breathed. But guess what? All scripture includes the Old Testament as well. Remember at the time, Christians in the first century, in Paul's day, they didn't have the compiled New Testament section of their Bible. What did they have? They had the law. They had the scriptures. They had the Old Testament. And so when they heard all scripture in the first century, they defaulted to knowing that all of the Old Testament is God's inspired, God-breathed word. They saw the entirety of that Old Testament of God's, uh, the Old Testament as God's word to them. It was useful. It helped train them. It helped equip them. Did you know, just doing math here, the Old Testament makes up almost two-thirds of our Bible? There are 66 total books in the Bible, 27 New Testament, 
39 Old Testament. If we cut out the Old Testament, if we leave the Old Testament behind, we lose almost two-thirds of what God wants to tell us. Can you imagine trying to play the telephone game and you only get a third of the message? How well are you going to do? You're not going to get it. It's no different when it comes to our Bible. The entire Bible is God's word. The entire Bible is useful. If we want to hear from God, if we want to be equipped and trained to further his kingdom, then we need all of it. New Testament and Old Testament. Second reason we need the Old Testament and why we can't get rid of it, if we lose the Old Testament, then we lose Jesus. If we lose the Old Testament, we lose Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus has died on the cross, rose from the dead, and he's hanging out with the disciples for 40 days. Their mind's just being blown. And they're sitting in like a preaching lecture and Jesus is teaching them. Here's what he says, verse 44. Jesus, he said to them, to the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Did you catch it? When Jesus says the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that is another way of saying the entirety of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is scripture that points to and teaches about who Jesus is. If we lose the Old Testament, we lose Jesus. Acts chapter 18, the New Testament book of Acts, if you didn't know, tells the story of the spread of Christianity, the ends of the earth after the resurrection of Jesus. And so in verse, chapter 18, verse 24, we pick it up. A Jew named Apollos, native of Alexandria, came to the city of Ephesus. He was a learned man, thorough knowledge of the scriptures, what we would say our Old Testament. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Again, did you catch it? Apollos was taught about the way of the Lord, the way of Jesus from his Old Testament. He also taught about Jesus accurately from the Old Testament. And then, verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, this is a married couple who were Christians, also following Jesus. They heard Apollos, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Priscilla and Aquila are like the veterans on a sports team. And they see the young buck, the young Apollos, a lot of raw talent, but need some refining. So what do they do? They take him in. They say, hey man, you're doing things really well, but here's how you can do it better. How did they do that? They taught him from the Old Testament. If we lose the Old Testament, then we lose Jesus. And we can't lose Jesus. The entire Christian life is all about knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and being faithful to Jesus and worshiping Jesus and following Jesus. If we really want that most in our lives, if that's what we really want, then wouldn't it make sense to get our hands on any and everything we could that teaches us and tells us about Jesus? Why wouldn't we do that? If we neglect, if we ignore, if we move on from the Old Testament, then in a very real sense, we're neglecting and we're ignoring and we're moving on from Jesus. Final reason. If we lose the Old Testament, then we lose the story of the Bible. Uh, I hope all of you love Harry Potter. If you don't, you're wrong. Uh, I remember, I've listened to the book several times, watched the movies, like I'd read the book, watch the movie, read the book, watch the movie. Uh, Everybody does, it's great. Anyway, I remember a few years ago when the final Harry Potter movie came out, Deathly Hallows Part 2. And if you remember, there's a huge cliffhanger at the end of the first movie. The battle's getting ready to happen to get that weird blue orb over Hogwarts. The movie picks up, you got this battle, and they're getting after it, and it's crazy. 
And about 20 minutes into the movie, it slows down. And you start to see the damage and destruction that has happened. And as I'm watching the movie, it's dead silent. It's dead silent because you are seeing all of the pain and death that has happened. And here's what happened. They get to Tonks and they get to Lupin who are dead. They're holding hands. They're married. I'm having my little moment. Everybody else is having their little moment. And then three seats down, a woman goes, oh God, out loud, ruined the whole thing for everybody in the film. It was one of those, come on, man. Now, why did she do that? She got the story. She was gripped by the story. She got the beauty, the complexity, the tension, the battles. And when Lupin and Tonks died, sorry, spoiler alert, you're about 10 years too late. She got it and she was moved by it. If all you did was see the last film and that's it, it's fine film, it's okay. You're not blubbering like crazy, ruining the movie for people because you don't know the backstory. You're missing it. And what's more, think about this, those previous movies, they build on each other, they're crucial for understanding just how awesome the ending of Harry Potter is and how tension-filled it is. Could you imagine getting in the end of the movies or end of the book and, and finding out some big spoiler alert? Like, well, now that you know Snape's true colors, we don't really need book six. We figured it out, let's move on. No. Or could you imagine now that you know whose uh, side Peter Pettigrew is really on, you go, glad we knew that. Let's just throw out that book. No, you find that out, you go, whoa, you go back and you want to read it again and go, wait a minute, this happened and I didn't know that. Oh my gosh, whole new world, right? The same dynamic is at work in the entire Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, the entire Bible is telling one big story with four chapters, the creation, the rebellion, the redemption, and the restoration. This is a true story. It accounts for how the earth and humanity came to be. It tells us what our purpose and our meaning is on this earth. It gives an explanation for the pain and the sadness and the confusion and the death and the hurt in the world. And every single one of us knows that something's wrong with the world. Everybody knows that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. But the biblical story doesn't just tell us what's wrong. It gives us hope. It tells us what the solution is. It tells us how the problem is going to be fixed. This is a story with a happy and a hopeful ending. Maybe best of all, this isn't a story that just expects us to sit on the sidelines. It's a story that invites us in. Every single person gets to play a significant and valuable and meaningful role in this story. I love how one student put it. She mentioned that her default mode is to view the Old Testament as irrelevant. But now, what she's starting to realize is that that is a failure to view the entire Bible with a wide-angle lens and see it as a continuous story from beginning to end. She's starting to get it. So the Bible, it's telling the Old Testament and the New Testament, a big, continuous, true story. But it's not just a true story, it's better. It's better. Better than what? Well, better than any other story out there. You see, we're all living for a story, whether you know it or not. We're all looking for a story that gives our lives purpose and meaning and value. We're all looking for a story that grips us, that captivates us, that gets us out of bed in the morning when we don't want to. We're all looking for a story that gives us the power and the resources to outlast hardship and loneliness and depression and anxiety and shame and guilt and hopelessness and fear. 
what story are you living in? What story are you living for? Are you hoping in a relationship to give you that meaning? Are you hoping that new pair of shoes gets you out of your funk? Are you hoping that you're gonna get the respect that you're craving in your academic performance, in your spiritual performance, in your social media performance? Have those stories satisfied you or have they let you down? I'm willing to bet the latter. I'm willing to bet that they're not gonna last in the end, but this biblical story, have you given it a chance? Have you studied it? Have you tried living it? Not just the one in the New Testament, but the one in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the whole story. This is a story of redemption and meaning and purpose and value and dignity and satisfaction and peace and grace and love and justice and mercy and hope and on and on. This biblical story is true and it's better. And we've got it. We've got it in the New Testament. We've got it in the Old Testament. If we lose the Old Testament, then we lose the story. In 2007, there's a pro baseball pitcher. His name's Matt White. He helped his aunt find a new place to live. He bought some land for her. It's worth about $50,000. Not chump change, but, you know, as far as land and buying property, he's not crazy. And he was exploring the land, kind of checking it out to see where he could actually start building this house for her. And he noticed a lot of ledges kind of all over the property, pretty, very beautiful ledges. And he was kind of curious. So he brought in a geologist to have him take a look. And the geologist found out this was a very rare and ancient stone. It was 400 million years old. It was valued at about $100 a ton. There was 24 million tons on this land. If you do the math, that land is worth almost $2 billion. Initially, that land looked ordinary. Nothing special. But after a closer look, he found out that it contained unimaginable wealth and value. You see, you and I are sitting on a land filled with unimaginable value and worth. God has given us that land and it's called the Old Testament. We've got it. We've got God's word. We have Jesus. We have the story in the New Testament and the Old Testament. How do we enjoy that land? How do we get the benefits of that value? We have to read it. We have to read it. Is it going to be weird at times? Yes. Is it going to offend your and my modern sensibilities at times? Yes. Is it going to feel irrelevant at times? Yes. Go ahead and read 1 Chronicles 1 to 9 when you get home. It's got about 8,000 names that are weird. It's nothing but a genealogy. That's going to feel irrelevant, but it's not. You've got to study a little bit to figure out why. Don't let those things stop you. Remember, Jesus needed his Old Testament. If you're curious and you want to figure out how do I read my Old Testament, we're going to have some resources for you after. There was a reading plan uh, resource on your seats, many of you saw. If you only read your New Testament, you're just watching the last Harry Potter film. That's it. It's good. It's fine. It's okay, but nothing great. If you only read your New Testament, then you've only got a third of God's message. You don't know Jesus as well or as fully as you could. If you only read your New Testament, you're missing out on the true and better story, and therefore you're not going to be gripped. You're not going to be motivated. But if you do read your Old Testament, if you decide to take a look and see what it's all about, and something's going to start happening in and through you thanks to the Holy Spirit. Psalm 19, one of my favorite psalms, describes what can happen in and through us by God's power, by his Holy Spirit, when we start reading the Old Testament. 
Verse seven, the law of the Lord, what we might call our Old Testament. It's perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. Decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned and keeping them there is great reward. This is the Old Testament. Refreshment, wisdom, joy, light, warning, reward. Are these things gonna come about immediately, overnight? Probably not. Here's an illustration that's helped me over the years, maybe it'll help you. When you start to read the Old Testament, you should approach it like getting in shape rather than like going to a fireworks show. Here's what I mean. If you go to a fireworks show, you go, you show up, you get comfy, you see a lot of big bangs, a lot of big lights, it's exciting, it's cool, it's crazy, and then you're done, and you move on. If that's how you read the Old Testament and you're expecting that, you're gonna be disappointed. You're going to stop after about a day because it's not always entertaining. It's not always flashy. It's not always big lights. Sometimes it's downright boring. On the other hand, think about what comes along when you know that you need to get in shape. Well, you know it's going to be a process. You know it's going to take time. You know it's going to be difficult. It's going to take some work on your part. And moreover, you know that a little bit is better than nothing. You know that it's better to burn 100 calories in 10 minutes than to burn zero calories in zero minutes. And over the time, you're gonna to start to see some results. Not a huge change after each workout, but over time, you, you evaluate by months and by semesters, right? And if you do it right, you're gonna see slow yet significant change. It's the exact same way when you read your Bible and especially when you read your Old Testament. If you read it expecting to be a workout, then you're ready. You're not gonna be surprised when you get to those weird and offensive and seemingly irrelevant passages. You're gonna be prepared to do the difficult yet rewarding work of reading through something like study notes in a Bible or reading through a commentary, trying to figure out why would God command the destruction of an entire people? Why would God send a flood? Why would God command Abraham to sacrifice his son on and on? And I promise you, you're not gonna be disappointed when you don't see immediate change. You're gonna persevere through dry seasons and you'll understand that a little bit is better than nothing. All this done, of course, by the power of God's spirit. Any change that happens, happens through him. So we've got to ask him for help. We've got to ask him to open our eyes to see that valuable land that we're sitting on. We don't always see it. We need help to see it. So let's ask him. As Audrey and Grady come up, we'll close with this. Let's think about the sun for a second, okay? Did you know that the sun, I'm going to look at my notes here, uh, is a G-type main sequence star that comprises about 99.8.6% mass of the solar system? Yeah, me too. Did you know the sun has an absolute magnitude of plus 4.83, estimated to be brighter than about 85% of the stars in the Milky Way? Did you know the sun is composed of primarily the chemical elements hydrogen and helium? At this time in the sun's life, they account for 74.9% and 23.8% of the mass of the sun in the photosphere, respectively. Boy, I hope you knew that. Embarrassing. Sun's surface area, about 6.09 times 10 to the 12 kilometers. The mass is 1.9885 times 10 to the 30, also known as 330 times the size of the earth. Here's the deal, nobody knows that. <laughs> but that lack of knowledge does not prevent you and me from enjoying the benefits of the sun on a beautiful day. You don't need to know all those facts about the sun to enjoy the benefits of the sun. If you don't know anything about the Old Testament, it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to know any of it to start reading it. 
Any lack of knowledge you might have is not gonna prevent you from beginning to benefit and dare I say, enjoy reading the Old Testament. But don't let the weirdness, don't let the offensiveness, don't let the perceived irrelevance of the Old Testament keep you from reading it, keep you from interacting with it. Jesus read his Old Testament. He wants us to read our Old Testament. Jesus needed his Old Testament and we need our Old Testament. Amen.